So our closing Dhamma talk evening, I like to call this talk Practice Here and There, Practice Everywhere. And so we're coming to the end of our intensive practice period here. And have we been here forever? (laughs) I think we have. (laughs) It's what it feels like. I can't remember when it started. I think it's been forever. (laughs) And we're soon to be taking ourselves, taking our practice out there, wherever out there is uh, for each of you. Which, in fact, for most of you will entail uh, a much longer period of intensive practice than we've been doing here. With the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, there's your practice. I think that many of us uh, come to the end of uh, a retreat, especially maybe some long retreats, with uh, some thoughts and some feelings that aren't so dissimilar to those that we've come into retreat with, that we came into the retreat with. I think for many of us, um, there's a feeling of excitement and a readiness to go into an extended period of practice. And maybe just before it's time to enter in, there might be the feeling of, well, I'm just not really quite finished out here. Just a few more days, I need a few more days, another week, so that I can get everything done, get all the things that need to be done in order to be able to go in to retreat. And I have to say that it seems, uh, at least for some of us, that similar thoughts come up when it's time to come out of retreat. An excitement and certainly a readiness for most of us to go into the larger world. Maybe. (laughs) And yet there certainly are some thoughts I've heard in practice meetings. Uh, Well, just a, a few more days would be great. A week. A month would be really good. And I think one person even said maybe a couple more months would be really good to get done what needs to be done. And and then I'll be finished. Then I'll be ready to go out into the larger world. To go back out there. And sometimes at either end, going in and the coming out, there might be some degree of reluctance, some resistance at both ends. Maybe some fear of the unknown or fear of this seeming known, or maybe essentially just fear of change. Fear of ending one way and entering into another way. And for some, there might be this feeling of, I just cannot wait. There's a great urgency. I can't wait. I'm so ready to get out of retreat. (laughs) I don't know if anybody in this retreat feels that way, but... Maybe it's passed through your mind. We might have felt that way coming in. I can't wait to get into retreat. 
So an urgency may be at either end. So you might check in with yourself and see if there are some of these kinds of thoughts and feelings, similar habits, habituated patterns probably, within your own mind and heart, um, coming up now at the end of this retreat. Maybe that you experienced as you were preparing to come here, or that you might have felt at the onset of, of the retreat. And of course, there might not be any anxiety or upheaval, small or large upheaval, in any direction at all entering into or coming out of a retreat. There's certainly the possibility that one might just feel a very clean, clear, open readiness and uh, happiness without any particular expectations or worries about just simply moving on to the next thing, the next phase and form that life will take. There's a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut uh, Russell Swikert many years ago regarding his experience traveling in outer space. And I really love reading this at the end of a retreat. And I know some of you have heard it before. It's quite a beautiful piece. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with the window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're a sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there, and they are like you. They are you, and somehow you represent them. You're up here as a sensing element, that point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not just for yourself, but the mind, the heart that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life, and you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility and it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. 
That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference, and it's so precious. And, as we all know, there is a change about to happen. And also, of course, we're aware of all the various changes that occurred during this time in retreat. And so, reflecting on the supports that are available to you as we begin to make the change out of retreat life into the larger world. One change is the pace of life. At least outwardly, life appears to and certainly feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our weeks of practice of how quickly and incessantly things change within our own body and mind. How quickly and incessantly things change all around us, even in this very slowed, slowed down pace of life in retreat. This understanding, this wisdom, is really a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice into practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in the day-to-dayness and moment-to-momentness, in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives. And maybe you've had a little taste of the impersonality of change. We've tasted certainly that we can't stop change. And that even though we might try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe we've tasted how painful it is to try to hold on. As concentration, mindfulness, kindness towards yourself and others, as all of these qualities and practices developed over these weeks, we've had some glimpse that whatever it is we experience in the body or the mind, the heart, that any of these experiences come together because of myriad, many, many causes and conditions. In truth, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then whatever it is changes quite quickly or simply disappears. These tastes, this understanding, 
has a deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and our aspirations and what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices that we make. More connection and clarity in our relationships to others. More clarity in what's important and appropriate. What's wholesome and really, truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a great protection as we connect, reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down. It's a life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is certainly a change from here to there. Life in retreat offers little outside distraction, at least compared to a a life out in the world, daily life out in the world. We sit, we walk, we listen to Dhamma talks, morning reflections, we eat, you do your yogi jobs, sleep, and you've spoken just a little bit every few days during our practice meetings. So a pretty simple life, actually. And within this container of simplicity, you've been encouraged and supported to develop a depth of clarity, of focused attention, and to mindfully pay attention to what occurs with each breath, and also in the body, what occurs in the mind and the heart. And you've been invited to sense, see, and know. Is the mind, is the heart opening to, connecting with, and receiving the breath or various other occurrences in the body-mind continuum? Or is the attention spaced out? disconnected, separated, or maybe caught, stuck in some physical phenomena or in some thought form. With all of this practice and learning bringing us closer to sensing, seeing, and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, calm, joy, and a sense of well-being. We're learning to recognize and respect and care about all of these cycles within our mind, heart, and body. This sensing, seeing, and knowing is also a very great support and great protection as we reconnect to the larger world. All of us are so similar, really. 
no matter who we are, where we live, or our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color, we're really variations on themes, basically. And we're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, living respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in the mind and heart. As we come to see and to know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language, and it affects our actions. Seeing into our own mind and heart affects and informs the motivations behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. And habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care. And let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. The possibility of engaging the refuges uh, or the precepts or both as part of one's daily practice, possibly beginning the day, chanting them to oneself, to yourself. This can be a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts and our words and our actions. There's a particular rendition of the precepts that was written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza from Green Gulch Farm, which is a Zen uh, Zen center. And I'd like to share these with you because it's really uh, inspiring. It's particularly relevant to daily life in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. 
knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess any thing or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures. The three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, and as may also unfold for some of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of the retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life uh, in retreat and outside of retreat, in a way that serves and supports this process of the purification of the heart and mind. And sometimes uh, this happens through, certainly happens through conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction. And as our practice deepens, there's really more and more often a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with absolutely no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we're learning about and that you've committed yourselves to. And it's often around very ordinary, very mundane, every asp- everyday aspects of our life. And an example that I like to give of my own is there was a time when I would get into my automobile and I would automatically turn on the radio. I'm sure you're familiar with that habit. And at some point, I began to notice it actually as a distraction. And so I decided not to turn it on all the time. I'd begin driving somewhere, and my hand would kind of automatically begin to move towards the radio knob. Habit's very strong. The force of habit is amazingly strong, actually. So then mindfully, I'd bring my hand back down. I wouldn't turn it on. And at some point, uh, with this practice, I began to notice the thought to turn on the radio. And then the choice was available, to or not to. And it's actually a practice that goes on for me. Uh, The thought doesn't come up as often to turn on the radio, but it does sometimes. And sometimes I do it, and sometimes I don't. I do turn it, don't turn it on more often than I do. I just like the quiet. (laughs) So, looking at another change, in this simple and 
quiet space of retreat. There may have been some big days or maybe some big events for you. And especially big day or a big event uh, for some of you might have been uh, something as mundane uh, as laundry day. We had kind of a couple of laundry days regularly in this retreat. For me, there were uh, times uh, early on in my practice, uh, in long intensive retreat practice, where laundry day was such a huge addition to my day that I would find myself planning for it or just thinking about it uh, before I went to sleep at night, uh, the day before it was supposed to happen. And then it would be the first thing that would come into my mind uh, when I woke up in the morning. And I suspect some of you know what I'm talking about. And how about the big event of the midday meal? As you're walking down to have that meal, the thought, well, what will we have for lunch today? Or maybe as you're walking down for that meal, the thought will be, what are we going to have for lunch tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) Or the big event of a one-on-one practice meeting. Maybe rehearsing. Maybe wanting to not go. Maybe really wanting to go. Maybe having a big list of what to talk about that you've been planning for for days. Who knows? Big events, big occurrences, big, uh, big days during our, our practice period. <clears throat> There's a poem uh, by the wandering uh, Japanese monk uh, Nanao Sakaki, who actually died some years ago. He calls this poem A Big Day. Getting water at the spring, carrying firewood, chattering with the neighbor, the sun goes down. A big day. Many years ago now, Nanao used to spend some time up at the Lama Foundation, which is about uh, 20 minutes from here as the crow flies. And he'd show up at Lama with his small knapsack and a a sleeping bag, and he'd stay up at the Lama Foundation for a few days. They were always very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains with just this, his sack, his knapsack, and his sleeping bag. And he'd often be gone for a couple of weeks, and then he'd be back at Lama again for a night or two. A dear friend of mine who was the coordinator up at Lama uh, during those years told me a story of uh, one of these times when Nanao had come in for a day or two from the mountains, and then he was going to head back out again. And he asked her and another friend if they would come out to his camp Uh, invited her and another friend to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. Well, my friend told me she was really delighted. This was something very special, something that, in fact, had never been offered before. 
So on the appointed day and at the appointed time, my friend and the other invitee uh, found their way out to Nana's camping spot by following his careful directions. And when they got there, Nana was there, but there wasn't any food ready or there wasn't any uh, any uh, food in view for dinner. And he told them not to bring anything with them. He said it wouldn't be necessary, that there was plenty of food. Well, my friends said that they thought maybe they'd made a mistake, that this was the wrong day. But Nana was very delighted to see them and greeted them warmly and and said very heartily, well, now let's go out and find dinner. (laughs) So my friend's friend said that they walked and they picked and they dug various wild foods. And then they came back and they built a fire and cooked what needed cooking and had an incredibly delicious dinner. And she said they finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or sometimes a couple of weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back strong, healthy, and very happy. Once someone in a practice meeting spoke about the simplicity of retreat life having a really good taste. So yes, we taste it, this good taste. And we take it with us. And it wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes in big ways. And as we all know, life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home life, our family life, our work life, our social life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do this little by little as our practice deepens in and outside of a formal retreat. We make choices in relationship to work, the work that we do. Volunteer work or work for pay. In the way that we spend time with family, friends, partners. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really, truly do have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, almost every aspect of our life. We really, truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course, there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we certainly must continue with. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way that we expend our energy what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity, complex relationships, responsibilities. From our experience in retreat practice, 
we learn, we see, we come to know more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance within ourself and within our life as a whole. We find, in fact, that we have more energy and more time available in our life to more, for our life, actually, to more directly and more clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat and as we connect to a larger world. Simplicity really being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. So the possibility of considering our whole life as our practice. How can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? I think this is really a most essential and important question. And of course the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we begin to integrate a clear, focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness into all dimensions of our being, making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, our creative endeavors, all part of our practice. So, for instance, we can find many moments throughout our day that we can just very simply bring our attention to the sensations of the breath or the sensations of the body moving or offer a metaphrase to ourself or to someone else. In almost any circumstance, and any activity. From this perspective, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really all of the conditions, all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. The joys and the irritations, the annoyances and the delights the frustrations and all the satisfactions, the pleasant and the unpleasant, likes and dislikes, all that we experience in life in retreat and in life outside of retreat. It's all a mirror for our practice. A woman who uh, sat at a retreat that I taught 
in Israel quite a number of years ago and who had long before I met her um, lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. And she told me a story uh, that's a wonderful mirror of a particular and difficult situation being the perfect practice in this community that she lived in in France. She said that in this community there was an old man who was very difficult. He was a very difficult, irascible fellow, she said. She said he was quite messy and argumentative. And she said he wouldn't cooperate, he wouldn't help with, with things, and basically he really didn't get along with others in the community. She said that no one liked him very much and that he himself didn't seem to like very many of the people in the community either. And he tried for a long time to stay in this community, but it was really, really difficult for him, as of course, as well as for other people. It was so difficult that he finally left and went to Paris. He couldn't bear it anymore. Well, Gurji followed him to Paris, she said, and tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said, nope, he couldn't do it. It was just too hard to be there. Well, Gurdjieff finally offered this man a monthly stipend to come back, which the man couldn't refuse because he was a very poor person. And so he did return. And when he arrived, this woman told me that everyone in the community was aghast. And they were even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there because they themselves actually had to pay to live in this community. And they made quite a fuss about it all. So Gurdjieff called a meeting. And uh, he said, this man, well, first of all, she said he listened to everybody's complaints. And, uh, and she said, then he laughed, actually, after that. <laughs> And then he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. (laughs) The conditions of our life and the people in our lives are all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for the purification of the heart and mind, yeast for our awakening, yeast for our liberation. And in relationship to this, the four Brahma Viharas, the four, Dubai, the, the, four, the four divine abidings, uh, in relationship to that particular teaching, uh, there's one teaching uh, among the 84,000 uh, that the Buddha was, supposed, was said to have offered where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons Uh, for the development of these four divine abidings, these four 
uh, metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka, unconditional kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. Each of the sons, because of uh, his particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of these divine abidings. And this is uh, the teaching from the Buddha that he has offered. Well, I only had three sons, uh, but they certainly managed uh, to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years, and continue to be, actually. Our closest people can be some of our best teachers. Just simply them being who they are. What they need from us. What they give to us. What they show us. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. In a poem, it's uh, translated from the Turkish, uh, and it's written by Edip Kansever, and it's called Table. A man filled with with the gladness of living put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window, sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that happened in his mind, what he wanted to do in life, He put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine. The man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he'd wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. The key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn 
moves along this sacred noble path is first and foremost a clear, concentrated attention that's deeply grounded in mindfulness and kindness. And it's true. There's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed over these weeks. A change from how it is in a retreat such as this, when we reconnect to the larger world. And it's true there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of mindfulness and investigation from how it is in a retreat such as this as we reconnect with the larger world. And although the same degree and depth of concentration and mindfulness and investigation isn't usually totally sustained outside of a retreat setting, the concentration, mindfulness, and investigative capacities that developed along with the multidimensional facets of understanding, wisdom, that have blossomed for each one of you in a retreat like this are really a great support and a great protection as you reconnect with the larger world. There is a change, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness, concentration, investigation, the heart's release that occurs through metta, and the continued blossoming of wisdom are always available to us. Many years ago, at the end of a two-month retreat with Saida Upandita and two other Burmese monks, I had a brief conversation with one of the monks. And I asked him if there was any advice that he might give me around taking practice into the whole of my life. And this was his response. He said, you need to eat and stay alive. Excuse me, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. And that's all he said. thought it was pretty good advice. (laughs) And there are some particular ways that I and others have found uh, to be quite helpful in bringing a very simple yet direct and immediate focus of mindful attention into our lives, into our daily lives. One suggestion that came uh, from uh, another teacher is that at the end of each hour of the day, take just one or two minutes to stop, be still, and just simply connect with the breath, either at the Anapana spot or in your belly or in your heart center, if that's where you pay attention to it. So however long your waking day is, that could be 15 to 30 minutes of a very directly focused, mindful time with, in fact, each of these minutes having an effect 
on the moments that follow. Another way to carry our practice into our daily lives is to remember at moments during the day to touch into the physical sensation, whatever they might be, through contact, that we feel through contact. The feet on the ground, the bottom touching the chair, hands touching each other. Mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with, connected with and strengthen every single time we do this. And it's very simple. So another possibility, remembering to offer some meta phrases uh, to the drivers around you when you're caught in traffic. And remembering to offer some meta phrases to yourself when you're caught in traffic. And also when you're at the grocery store, standing in a long line or a short line offering metaphrases to other people and to yourself or any other situation where you might find yourself tending towards irritation where there are groups of people. I think that the only hard thing uh, about doing these brief meditation sessions is to remember to do them. They're not hard to do, it's just hard to remember to do them. I know some people who uh, put little notes to themselves uh, up around uh, where they live or in their workplace or in their study to remind themselves to check in. So maybe a note on the bathroom mirror, breathe or breath. Maybe a little stand-up note on your desk at home or at work still breathing, or metta now, or here now. There was, uh, many years ago when I was resident teacher for staff at IMS, there was a fellow who worked in the front office there who had a a really good sense of humor. And uh, he had a little stand-up note standing on his desk, sitting on his desk, that said buttocks, to remind him to bring his attention to the touch points of his bottom on the chair every now and then. And of course it always brought laughs as well. (laughs) The former director of the Forest Refuge, the long-term practice center on the IMS campus, programmed his computer to sound the ring of a mindfulness bell every 45 minutes to remind him to stop, just stop, and check in with his breath for a few moments. And I found out about this because we had a meeting and in the midst of our meeting the mindfulness bell went off and he told me what it was for so we did it. It was great. I thought it was a fabulous idea. Walking meditation can be a very important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of really continuing to connect with and strengthen concentration and mindfulness. Most of us walk at least a few miles just going from place to place, maybe throughout a day, certainly throughout a week. And we can make some of this walking time part of our practice. 
And if you take walks, you can also include practice as part of that process. When I lived as the resident teacher at IMS, uh, I'm a resident teacher for staff, my workroom and my living space, which were the same room, were up on the second floor of the main building there. And because I did uh, many uh, practice meetings uh, with staff and had lots of other meetings on a pretty much daily basis, I didn't have uh, much time at all during the day to do walking meditation. So I made a decision that every time I would go up and down the stairs, that would be my walking practice. And I remember to do this most days once I made the decision to do it. And at one point, uh, a staff member came in for a practice meeting with me. And he was obviously uh, quite uh, agitated. And, uh, and with a, some difficulty, he told me that he was quite upset because I, he said I was ignoring him. He said that he, he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, that I wouldn't even look at him. And, and he was wondering if I was angry with him. And I told him that um, going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time and that I absolutely had not abandoned him, nor was I angry with him. It was just that I was practicing as deeply as I could going up and down the stairs. Well, of course, this completely changed his attitude. And he was happy for me, and he said he thought it was a great idea. People might not always understand what you're up to uh, when you integrate practices into your life in small ways. But do it anyways. Use your life life wisely. And of course, it's really helpful to connect with others who practice. And we certainly can see and feel the benefit of this uh, here in a, re- in a retreat setting. And I think most of you are connected uh, to, with others who practice. Uh, if you're not on a regular basis, uh, and there's not a group where you live, um, start one. Even if it's just with one or two other people. I don't think I'm going to go... I think there's nobody here that doesn't have people to connect with for practice, so I'm not going to go into this. You all know, know about this part of it. The Buddha, in a conversation with Ananda, one of his chief disciples, spoke about the tremendous importance of the connection with spiritual friends. And this is the Venerable Ananda speaking to the Buddha. He said, Half this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends. Companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responded, he said, Don't say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. (coughs) Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. And let every moment, as much as possible, be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is really one of the greatest 
arts in life, perhaps the greatest. And it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that calm, tranquility, kindness, and joy increase. It's inevitable that peace increases and that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. And another uh, poem by Nanao Sakaki. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. And so closing the closing talk with a poem by a Native American woman named Joy Harjo. And she calls this Eagle Poem. To pray you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon. To one whole voice that is you and know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing, and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion. Like eagle rounding out the morning inside us, We pray that it be done in beauty, in beauty. And let's sit quietly together for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.